Hello, dental online trainers. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley. Have you ever been in an audience where there's been like this heated conversation between a presenter and one of the audience members? I mean, maybe more than just heated. Well, in our conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Rouse, part two of our conversation, Dr. Rouse shares with us some of the challenges of going, becoming a pioneer, being a pioneer in dentistry. In this case, it's on airway and sleep disordered breathing. And Jeff's gonna share with us, it was more than just a heated argument. I, he says they were yelling at each other, if you can imagine that. Dr. Rouse and one of the participants in this presentation. These are some of the challenges when you're a pioneer. So look forward to listening to this next ShareCast, part two of our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Rouse, as he talks about sleep disorder breathing, airway, and what we need to do and what we need to understand as dentists. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back because it gives you a good foundation of the path that Dr. Rouse took to get to where he is today. But for now, let's listen in as we talk to Dr. Jeffrey Rouse about sleep disorder breathing and airway and what we need to know as dentists. Enjoy. Hello, dental online trainers. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Rouse, airway prosthodontist. If you missed the first episode in our ShareCast, I'd recommend that you go back and listen to really get a sort of a good understanding of Dr. Rouse's history, sort of his background, sort of what's led him up to where we're going to talk about this afternoon, which is this airway information. Jeff, I tell you, I remember seeing you back. You came and spoke to our study club. First, you had spoken to our study club on the core stuff. You and Bill came out and you did a, a three-part program, which was awesome. And for those of you who have an opportunity to get a part of that, I know Bill's still teaching that stuff, Bill Robbins, and it was super valuable information, super helpful for me in my practice and our study club. And then I met up with you with the airway stuff. We went out and... I, you may have introduced us to Jim Metz. I'm not quite remembering how we first met up with Jim in Columbus. It might have been just through Brian Vence, his uh, relationship mm -hmm. with Jim. And then we started sort of following your tracks. And I remember Inside Dentistry, the uh, Bruxism Triad that you presented. So our uh, first question is like, how did it start for you with the airway? Was it like this little drip and drab, like you just see a little bit, hear a little bit, start to get introduced a little bit? Or was it like you opened a door and there was a bright light and there was airway just like, just giving you a big old hug and Jeff just <laughs> welcomed you into airway? So we kind of have to go backwards a little bit in my history because we were talking in the other, the other session about where I came from, what I did. But my, I got into debate in high school. And I actually was on scholarship to debate for AM, so nationally. And what debate teaches you is to be able to take a topic, research the topic, and then present the research in a cogent way to make an argument. The last session I mentioned that, that Bill Robbins allowed me to do lit reviews with his group. Right. I wasn't one of the outstanding students, but they let me do that. And the reason I even mentioned or even asked about it was it, I heard about it through a friend and I was like, well, that's debate. And I love doing the research stuff. Can I do that? Can I learn about this? Because of that, I got this way of thinking through problems that I've carried on since then, which is if I have an issue in the practice, then I'm going to go research it. I'm going to read all available literature. And then 
I'm also going to view it with a critical eye because in debate, I have to be able to argue both sides. And so I'm always, I'm never really satisfied with what I've been presented by people. I'm always asking why, why would that be? I mean, there are just lots of things in dentistry that just don't make sense. Sure. And we just accept it because we didn't, we either don't think about it or we don't have a better answer or I, I don't, I don't know why, it, or our mentor, you know, somebody we trusted told us that. Right. Becomes dogma. So the, I always had a fascination with Bruxism as just something that I always wanted to know more about. And so in 2004, I graduated from my PROS program. Bill and I had been teaching global diagnosis from that for a while, but the piece to global diagnosis that was missing is, okay, we've got the teeth set up where we want them. How do you do the next thing? So we started teaching the next thing. And part of that was occlusion. And so Bill said, all right, you're the prosthodontist. You get to teach occlusion. And I sucked at it. I was horrible at it because I was teaching it the way I taught and they taught me in grad school and no one wants to know all that stuff. Honestly, occlusion, what you want to know is how do I keep from hurting someone? which is pretty rare. To be honest, it's fairly rare that you're going to dink with someone's occlusion to the point where you've created some dysfunction or pain, right? Yep. So that's fairly rare and you got to really mess something up. But what really is important in inclusion is how do you keep my dentistry from breaking? I don't care about your dentistry. I don't want my dentistry to no break. In fact, if your dentistry breaks, it is a bonus because <laughs> I get to redo it. <laughs> so I started looking into why does stuff break? That was really what I was going to, how I was going to teach occlusion. Why does stuff break? What do we do to avoid that from happening? Okay. And then a little bit about how do people get in pain? But it was mostly why does stuff break? With the why does stuff break, I was taught that it was all about bruxism. That's the key. If you could somehow get to whatever bruxism, what the culprit is, what the trigger is, then we could start protecting our dentistry. 2005, six, seven, I'm doing research on bruxism and I've got notebooks full of stuff on occlusion and all those topics, but mostly focused about bruxism. And what, what were you taught in, in your program about I was, why are people brux? Uh, I was taught three things, stress, neurochemical, and occlusion. A bad bite can cause people to brux. Yes. Yep. So I was taught if you're stressed, if you're just got piss poor luck and you happen to have a neurochemical imbalance that creates an environment for bruxing, you know, you're just a grinder, right? Yep. And if you have a second molar interference. Same as I was taught back at, back at Michigan. I was also taught that bruxism was an incredibly aggressive phenomena that causes you to break crowns and teeth and mm-hmm. right. Okay. I'm working under that premise, but I'm always skeptical. I'm always questioning. And I had already spent a fair amount of time by this point looking at daytime bruxing because I was extremely interested in bruxism in general. Mm -hmm. And I started getting a real fascination with what we do with our teeth during the day. So I was already focused on that and things had started to change in my mind Mm -hmm. by that point. December of 2007, there was an article written by a guy named Undero. Uh, in cranio. And Undero was using an ultra thin piece of vinyl. It was 0.1 millimeter thin Mm -hmm. before heating. So it gets even thinner. And he painted it with an ink and he watched people grind on that. I remember you sharing this with us during your uh, early meetings with us in the study club. Continue though. This is, this is really interesting stuff. So Undero goes through and watches people grind 
And one of the things that hit me, well, there are a handful of different things that hit me, but one of the main things was people don't grind forward at all at night. They only grind laterally. And then I was like, okay, that's really interesting. So I started doing this myself and I've done over 300, I think 350 or something like that now, multiple nights with people grinding on this, these pieces of plastic that we've created. And, and then did you paint I've, the surfaces of them? Is that what I remember, Jeff? You would paint the surfaces uh, almost I like a nail polish it. material, right? Yeah, I changed it from when Andero's stuff was kind of toxic. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I changed it up a little. But yeah, so they would, they would grind. And sure enough, they grind lateral. No one really moved forward. So I made some during the day to watch what people did during the day. And they had some pretty standardized patterns during the day. And so that's where it started was 2007, the end of 2007 saying, okay, there's a, there's something going on here. There's a pattern of grinding that's happening. And by the way, I never put, if anyone had wear facets on their teeth, I never ever placed a device in their mouth and they didn't grind. So they're always sure. grinding. They're grinders. If they're going to grind, they're going to grind. The interesting part there is that now the sleep literature tells you only 5% of people grind their teeth at night, which is just wrong. Right. The data, the reason they established that is they set a really high standard for how many times, how hard all these, you know, it has to make noise. So the data is between the research data and what's out there, the, the message from dentists and the message from researchers just do not jive at all. This is so, one of the biggest challenges, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, anyway, that's, that got me, that got me going and really got me excited about the topic. And so what I started finding was that what we had been told about nighttime bruxing was wrong. The forces generated at night are really low. They're not high. People rarely ever have an event that even reaches near 100% of what they can do while they're awake. Mm. And yet I was taught it was five to six times. Yes. You can somehow generate five to six times more strength at night when you're asleep. The forces are very mild, about same amount of force when your teeth come together when you're swallowing. So, so then are yeah. our, our patients then exhibiting these higher wear patterns from daytime bruxism? So... The wear patterns, well, let me, let me finish the thought. It's not about, at night, it's not about breaking anything. So if you think about your practice, patients don't call you at eight o'clock in the morning having been asleep the night before and broke a tooth off in the middle of the night. Occasionally I do. Occasionally I'll do. Like, cause we'll have like kids in Essex appliances after we do some bonding and they'll wake up with the, with the binding broken off in the Essex appliance. I'll just give you my history then. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you what I think is the answer for that. Okay. My history is I've never had anyone break a tooth off when they were asleep, ever, a tooth. I've had two people break little bits of ceramic, but never shearing big pieces of ceramic off. Mm -hmm. They broke and they would complain of it being uh, feeling like sand. So they've broken these little pieces off. I'm going to suggest to you that people that break things in the middle of the night were actually awake when they broke it. Oh, interesting. And that's the difference. They weren't fully asleep. And I will do that occasionally since I've been in ortho, I'm more aware of my teeth. And so I will find myself as I'm waking up, 
moving mm -hmm. my jaw and clenching down in a different position, mm -hmm. in an unusual position. So if you were to monitor when the impact really happened, I'm guessing that the ones that you're highlighting probably were awake, mm -hmm. moving to a side, changing sleep position, whatever. And they grid, they were gritting down at that point okay. because they had this thing in their mouth, retainer in their mouth. They had discomfort in their mouth. Their teeth were sore from it. Something to that effect. I know when I was in Invisalign my, and I put a new tray in, I would also, the teeth would be sore. I want to clench against the retainer when I would, but I was awake. I think what we've been taught about what happens at night is not, is incorrect. What happens at night is you wear the teeth down and the reason you wear the teeth down. So you're talking about wear patterns. The reason you wear the teeth down is because you're breathing through your mouth and you may have reflux and you have this stimulation to grind because of airway events. Now you've got dry, acidic, you know, demineralized teeth. They're going to wear faster. Right. How much relationship is there, is there with grinding and with um, acid reflux? What's fair what? amount? A couple of studies. Unfortunately, it hasn't been studied very well. But there have been a couple of studies where they compared people that grind and people that don't grind, mm -hmm. and monitored for pH levels in the oral pharynx, mm -hmm. and found that the ones that grind would had moments where the pH was dropping low like four, three mm. and in that range. Mm -hmm. And it would elicit a grinding response and the grinding response would, would be associated with a swallow because it's, it's the way you buffer. Yep. If your mouth is completely dry at night, which is what happens, salivary flow is circadian. So you're only swallowing two, three, four times an, an hour at night. Now let your pH drop to three you got to swallow, you got to milk up some saliva somehow. So, cause I've seen reports where, or research where they've suggested, I've seen it both ways where bruxism instigates the, the reflux, but I've also seen where it says reflux instigates the bruxism. So based on what you're well, describing, it would be the, the latter. I don't think the bruxism causes the reflux. I think that both of them, bruxism, I think is due to negative pressure events. That would be an easy way of saying it. All right. So bruxism can be, and there are other reasons why, sure. but can be caused by a negative pressure event. So what are negative pressure events? Well, they're respiratory events where the airway shuts down. So the body's saying I need to breathe, but it also a negative pressure event also can milk up acid from the stomach. Okay. So it's an acidic event. So if we think of bruxism as being a reaction to negative pressure, then you say, when my airway is closing, I'm going to grind. When I get reflux up, I'm going to grind. One's to buffer, one's to breathe. Gotcha. So It seems like, I mean, I didn't create the system, but it seems like nature would have created a system where if we were going to be grinding while we're sleeping and we needed to reduce this negative pressure, that we would be grinding forward to yeah. be able to maximize the uh, opening the airway. That's yeah, you would, you would assume, but... Think about the muscles involved in making you grind protrusively. It's just these tiny little lateral pterygoid. Yeah. The lateral movement is bigger muscles, easier to, easier to instigate, easier to activate. And it involves the tongue. I mean, the tongue can be involved in that. The other, the other thing, and I'm just, you know, I have no, no proof of this, but what we're finding more and more in the ENT literature is that when they do surgical interventions, the AP 
dimension of the airway is not the key. It's the lateral component of it. Okay. So moving laterally may actually be the most advantageous. Mm -hmm. We as dentists think protrusion because that's what our device does. Right. So we just assume what we do is what the right thing to do. And it may Mm -hmm. not be that at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe that the perfect oral appliance would move you laterally. Right. During the night, switch you left to right, move move you all around, keep you guessing. There you go. All right. So tell me this, Jeff. So you are a pioneer in this field. And in my practice, I was practicing with uh, Buddy Mopper, who, for those who don't know, was a real pioneer in cosmetics, but especially with composite and composite bonding. And Buddy, what's your stories about as a pioneer in that field? A lot of pushback that he would get from other dentists. Um, I know Pete Dawson, uh, when he came out with his principles of sort of joint related occlusion stuff, he had a lot of pushback. He spoke openly about that. Are you comfortable talking about that, about sort of your experiences in this sort of airway sure. world and being, being the person sort of, you're sort of like Don Quixote, you're out there with your, uh, with your sword and you're, you're running at windmills sometimes it might seem. What's, what's, your, what's been your experience? You know, it's gotten better because in 2000, and, oh, you know, the, the story, the end of the, the first story was in 2008, I started that study in my own office. It led to, in 2010, I wrote the Bruxism Triad article. And in that two-year period, and Jim Metz was one of the, we, you mentioned, Jim was one of the ones that introduced me to the airway literature and its relationship to Bruxing. And so it was a two-year period where I was just fully invested in finding these answers. But in 2010, when I write this article saying, you know, there's a, there's a relationship out there between bruxism, reflux, and apnea, and that you need to be looking, if you see a bruxer, start asking other questions. If you see reason, I mean, always ask other questions because these, these are the same people. And then I went off and wrote two more articles in the next year or so, linking it, the airway to TMD patients, where I said, I think that the run-of-the-mill TMD headache, morning headache, uh, muscle pain, that patient, I think that's an airway patient. And Man, then so I went great. on into, into kids. I wrote an article about kids and all the issues that kids have, especially ADHD, which is what my son had. So I think this is just an airway issue. At that point in time, though, I had to make, I had to do a pretty sophisticated debate presentation sure. where I just had to piece things together and then fill in the logic between them. This mm-hmm. is where, and and I was following a lot of the stuff that Christian Guimanot out in Stanford was doing. I was around him a couple of times and it was like, I think like you, I mean, he's doing it, but my mind was thinking the way his mind was thinking. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. a physician. I'm a dentist, but he would tell his residents, you go in the room and you are given two minutes to find all the anatomic problems that could be leading to this. Cause he was on the track of it being anatomy the whole yep. time. So I kept thinking the way he was doing and he was publishing stuff. So my mind was saying, this is what's going to happen. And Gimeno would come along in a year or two later, and I'd have a publication to prove it. At that point in time, I mean, I was fighting every time I spoke. I mean, just on this topic of Bruxism, I mean, there was a meeting of the American oral facial pain. And there were three mics after there were three speakers. All three of us took Q&A for 30 minutes after the after all three of us had finished. So it was like these little sessions. Sure. And Jeff Okuson was one of them. I mean, he's yes. freaking famous as all get sure. out, right? Yep. And we sat down and there were three mics in the audience and this, this group of 
followers of this one cult, essentially, dominated the three mics. And for 25 minutes, we yelled at each other. Okasin, finally, the, the guy running the program said, uh, we're going to have to take a question for Dr. Okasin. <laughs> and honest to God, it was the first guy stood up and said something. And then I just, I didn't answer it. I just sat there and went, okay, that was a statement, I guess. And then the second guy goes off and asks a question and I answered it. And the third question, I could feel my heart start beating hard and might get flush. And I was like, all right, here we go. And literally we yelled at each other, yelled at each other for the next 20 something minutes. It was crazy. So yes, I've had oral facial pain. People yell at me about bruxism. And today the research is now continuing to evolve to show that what I was saying is true. If I was dogmatically believing in the things they believed in at the time, I could absolutely make the argument, Jeff, Hey, you're having to make leaps here. Yeah. Like, yeah, I am. Sure. So, and I would have totally understood that. I would have totally said it. You're right. It's an explanation. I think we ought to start looking at it, but I didn't get that. I got, right. Sure. So I get that. Interestingly, I have rarely had arguments with physicians. Sleep physicians would be the exception. They tend to want to dominate everything. If you find somebody that you think has a problem, you send them to me. Well, no, I don't think so. And then we would go back and forth because they want total control of the case. And I'm like, I'll send them to you, but I'm still going to do my stuff because all I'm doing is dentistry. Right. And and you're seeing the first line failure where they're seeing end line failure. Yep. Right. ENT. I had an ENT that worked in my office for five years. And because of that, I get along really well typically with ENTs because I've got a guy in my office. They know him because he's published. It's kind of like, well, if he trusted him, you know, I'll trust him. And I'm a big fan of ENT. So, and I know they're, I, I do, I speak their language and I read their literature. The one that's funny to me though, is I am probably the biggest proponent of orthodontics making a change mm-hmm. in patients of anyone sure. out there. I mean, yeah. I, that's, for me, this is all structural. If we can get to it early, we fix people for a lifetime. If we miss it, we have to play catch up and see what we get out of it. That's been your message from the very beginning. And orthodontists argue with me all the time. It's crazy. I, I see it in my community. I see it firsthand. I, anyone who's in this, who's done any airway stuff, sleep dentistry, and they've tried to communicate with their orthodontist and collaborate with the orthodontist. If you're like me, you've run into a lot of, lot of dead ends and a lot of walls. And they, it's crazy that you're trying to provide not only better outcomes for the patient, but you're actually trying to give the orthodontist more treatment. Oh yeah. And they, more. And they will just, and they will just fight you tooth and nail. It's, yeah. it's bizarre to me. It's, it's so, so here's what I think they can't get out of their head. They're, metric has always been aesthetics and function. Correct. Like, you know, the end of all their studies is aesthetics and function. And I don't care about that. I care about health. Mm -hmm. I care about volume. I care about, and that's one thing is aesthetics and function. And the other is, and the way I word it today is I show an example of a denture that's totally off. And I say, 
the wax rim is off. And I, and I ask everyone in the audience, what's the matter with the wax rim and the wax, they go, well, it's, you know, it's canted and it's not supported and it's not wide enough. And I go, okay, well, well, what would you do? Well, I'd warm the wax. I'd move the wax. I'd move here. I'd add wax. I'd do whatever. Right. And I then ask, would anyone set teeth on that wax rim and try to manipulate the teeth in such a way as to camouflage the fact that the wax rim is off. And everyone's like, no, I just fix the wax rim. I'm like, why do we do that in ortho then? Why do we do that in restorative dentistry? Why don't we, why don't we just fix the wax rim? Because if the wax rim is correct, then the aesthetics and function are way better. But more importantly, lousy wax rims are telling you a story about the health of the patient. Let me ask you a question. So first of all, for those of you out there who have not read Jeff's information from Inside Dentistry 2010, the Bruxism Triad, you should Google that and read that because for me, that was just a seminal article, Jeff, that that article really opened up my eyes and gave me an awareness that I, I had not had before. And then secondly, I think the issue with dentists and with orthodontists on this topic is, and especially with orthodontists, but maybe dentists also, is the whole idea of upsetting the apple cart. You know, orthodontists, their practices, they, they're kind of a machine, right? They have a yeah. number of, and most orthodontic practices, certainly not all, yes. but many and most, they have a team of skilled assistants that are going to be doing the, the, the heavy labor. They're going to come in and just, you know, change the wire, whatever they're doing, but they have a system that works. And I think that they're very nervous of putting their putting a word out in the community because orthodontists are like the most community established professionals out there. I mean, orthodontists are in the community. They're, they're like clergy, I think, right? I mean, they really are. I mean, people are so dedicated to the orthodontists um, that they don't want to be seen as someone who is sort of outside the thinking outside the box or thinking out the, the norm. And I think it scares them to put themselves in a situation like that. So I think that's why orthodontists are so fearful of losing that grip on their community by going out into this, this airway thing, though it's so critical and so important that we're treating this at a young age because. So I, I can see that. And I think that's community dependent. In fact, I know that's community dependent. Sure. Your community that you're, you practice in and work in, that's a, an older established, yep. right? Conservative yep. kind of community. Yes. Second, third generation orthodontist, right? You now go to uh, Santa Barbara. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be the holistic orthodontist? Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone wants that. And yep. so there, there's a study that in, in one of the ortho journals that came out in 2011. So it's an older study, but it's still one that I think is valuable for orthodontists to know and, and utilize. And it said at the end in looking at heart rate variability, which is an incredible marker for overall health, mm -hmm. that people that have malocclusions are unhealthy in comparison to people that have normal occlusions. So working to a crappy wax rim rather than in going in early and, and developing it. And, and I mean, you can make this whole case, this, this entire change of we're going to be looking at health. So my, I have an, two different orthodontic practices in town, one in the, in your community, your style of community. Mm -hmm. And he is more reticent to do this type of 
and really be out there, but yep. I get him to do it. Cause that's, it's like, Jay, I'm sending you this to do this. The other one is in a newer, younger community. And the guy's wife is a physician that is dealing with holistic types of things as well. And his practice is just killing it. It's mm. crazy. I mean, this guy is, he works four weeks, takes off one and, he, and he's off doing incredible. I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. You ask in the other segment that we did, what's your, you know, what message do you have? Well, if you're a young orthodontist, good Lord, focus on early intervention. And I mean, be yep. that guy, be the airway guy, be, be different. Yeah, you know? I agree. Because if you're trying to compete with the other orthodontists that are doing traditional dental, and there is this phenomenal opportunity. And now there's a, research. And now there's research. I mean, there's tons it. of research. It's so the orthodontists will badmouth the other orthodontists. It's crazy. Sure. I mean, they're, they're like, oh, well, he does this and he goes, oh, and he's wanting tonsils out on everyone. Well, now there's data that says we ought to be doing this. And so they can turn it right around and say, if you're not doing it, you're doing X, Y, and Z to these kids. Yep. And I don't want to be that guy. So if you're willing to be the, the old guy looking at just bites and function, and you don't realize the impact that orthodontists can have, you be that, but that's not going to be me. When you're talking sometimes, about, by the way, you were talking about, you know, sometimes you just got to stand up right. to, to stuff and yeah. just say, you know, this is wrong. And, and nowadays there's enough science that, that it was cloudy when I began arguing with people. Sure. It is no longer it's not a, it's not set, you know? Yep. But it's pretty darn close. So, so you don't think this whole airway thing is just a fad? Like it's just going to go away? Like mythology? <laughs> no, it ain't going away. If, if we live 20 more years, we won't be talking about, oh, remember those days when we used to talk about airway? Uh, that ain't going away. It's, it's not, and you know, here's the evolution that's happened. And, and we need to get you out to, to the course sometimes because sometime soon because it's changed i spend very little time you mentioned the seattle protocol i spend very little time talking about the protocol anymore it used to be about what appliance do you make and that sure. journey uh, making the appropriate appliance which i think is still a great idea and we do it i mean i still do it in the practice but it's very infrequent today it's about just different treatment planning it's just a treatment plan it, I, in fact you mentioned airway pros and i it almost hits me wrong now to think of the course as anything but advanced treatment planning. Mm. That's all it is. Frank Spear introduced facially generated treatment planning. Bill and I went and said, you know, the problem with that is that it's not systematic enough. Mm -hmm. We need to make it five questions and yep. these, and the answers tell you what to do next. So that's all we did was systematize it so that it could be easier to utilize. Yep. But both of those systems really only dealt with the vertical component of where the teeth belong. Sure. Yep. There's a little bit of a discussion about the horizontal, but not much. The transverse. Okay. Yep. And there's no discussion of AP. Yep. Right? There, I mean, we you mention some markers, but you rarely talk about it. Normally is if you look at a case that Bill and I would do or Frank would do, it's like, where do the teeth belong in this dimension and how do I get them there? Right? And the only, the only exception to that is if you had a VME case, and then you would talk about correcting the entire maxilla, right? Yeah. So airway adds the other pieces to it. That's it. 
because the transverse dimension is the nasal volume, the ability to breathe through your nose, and the AP dimension is the back of the throat and where the soft palate sits. So incorrect positioning the maxilla has an impact on aesthetics and function, but most importantly, health. And so that's why airway isn't going away because it's just going to become part of dentistry. It's just how I see cases now. When I put them, when I used to put them on the articulator, it's like, okay, there's the maxilla. What do we got? You know, how are we going to deal with that? Yep. Well, we could do veneers that are really fat and bulk them out. And we could kind of give the illusion that we fixed the wax rim, or we could now fix the wax rim. And ortho has progressed at such a rapid pace that there's sophisticated ortho being done on almost all the rehabilitations I'm doing. And it makes my life easy. So I'm glad you brought that up. So for those who aren't familiar with Marpian Dome, those are essentially maxillary, maxillary expansion, surgical and non-surgical, using some sort of retention to place into the palate to expand the palate. So I have a couple of questions. I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the challenges I think when I'm talking to patients is what is the predictability with being able to improve airway if you have a successful expansion? How many millimeters do we have to expand? And I know this is different for every patient, obviously, because of what their needs are when they start out. But number one, and for instance, I have a patient I'm having a consult with, and I, it's funny enough, this is what I wanted to ask you about. So he's 60 years old. He's very narrow arches, end to end, close to crossbite in the posteriors, several millimeters of recession on the posteriors, sort of a classic narrow arch guy, incredibly healthy, like, you know, triathlete, super healthy. We, uh, we did a high-res pulse ox on him. Um, things were fine. He's, like, he has zero health complaints, zero health complaints. Number one, it's hard to sell health to people when they're healthy, and especially from a dentist perspective, you know? Yeah. But number two, what would I expect to achieve besides being able to give, perhaps give a more stable occlusion if I got him expanded? If you have a patient that is healthy and they're beyond, say, being a, a younger, I'm talking about sort of a, an, a mature adult, are those patients that you still look to, to have these conversations? And what I guess I don't know what to tell him to expect. What would be the positive outcome of going through an expansion procedure and you know the procedures that are involved with that? So... I guess the first thing I would say is that that you're giving me the exception. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, that's, that's, that, that's, fine. that's a very rare patient. And I would bet that if we sat long enough with him, we could find the things that are being impacted. Cause I, I've not found people that are, he's having to adapt somehow. I don't he's having that. to overdo like, you said he's a triathlete. And I mean, there's something that's allowing him to get past the structural issues that he, that he has. So he's just, oh, he's just trained his way out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that could be a possibility, but a very rare exception. The rule is that person's going to be sick. Yeah. So if it's a patient like that, the discussion becomes more difficult in that we go back to old school. It's, aesthetics and function that you're going to have to sell. Yeah. Well, that's what we did most of our career, right? You mm -hmm. need your teeth out here. Here's, you know, we can do a mock-up. We can, so it's right. just old school stuff. 
Today we have for the recession, we could do SFOT surgery where we could cover the tissue, get quicker expansion. You could do what we did in my mouth, right? To answer your question though, what to expect? Let's do it a different way. If you do an orthodontic procedure to just add bone, so surgically facilitated ortho, all you can expect is a gain in oral cavity volume. The gain in oral cavity volume typically is met with the tongue coming out of the airway more yep, and you being able to breathe better. You've opened up the, the space for the tongue to set more forward. However, that's not a guarantee. Okay. You yep. may have to train them through myofunctional therapy. A, a large percentage of old men that have had apnea for a long period of time don't tend to activate their tongue during episodes. They tend to be just lay there and let the tongue. So no matter how much room you create, you aren't going to help them. Right. Does myofacial therapy help with those people while they're sleeping to um, regain tongue function? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but it will create more tone and therefore the airway won't be as collapsible. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that they're going to move the tongue up or keep the lips closed, but they do, their airway will be more toned. So the collapsibility is less. Does that also support the new position of the teeth? If they go through that myofunctional therapy, get the tongue to if, be if, in the better position. Yeah. If they can get them there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can do that. And, and it's basically adding base plate wax, right? Yep. To a wax rim. All right. If, however, instead of adding base plate wax, you actually grab the wax rims and move them out where you want them and put them on with more sticky wax, right? That's marpy or dome, which is we're actually putting um, a jack screw essentially in the middle of the palate and, and separating an adult the way that you would a kid. You can add a little surgical release as well. If you do that, you will absolutely gain nasal volume. You will absolutely gain a lower resistance to nasal breathing. You will absolutely get less nasal valve collapse. So you will breathe better through your nose. Typically, when you get that expansion, you you know, and do all the things, you're also getting oral cavity volume. So you're doubling up. So the difference between just doing perio along with ortho and doing the split is the nose. And the nose is the key to everything. I've it, heard from those who've gone through it, they immediately feel it. I mean, it's like almost instant, instantaneous that they- A lot of them, even before the split happens, they'll go, yeah. oh my God, I'm breathing better. I'm like, well, nothing's happened yet. And they're like, I don't know. It's just, it's amazing. And, and then when that split occurs, they say it's just like crazy. Like, yeah. like it's like they just have this whole volume of, yeah. of air coming in. Uh, it's, it, it, it is an amazing change. The huge advantage comes if you can do it with Marpy as opposed to having to make the surgical cut. The advantage- the nasal volume growth, the nasal breathing, the best changes you can possibly get is if you do it with Marpy because it's like a Lafort 3. The whole face changes. Got it. Volumetrically. And most of the people that need it need, you know, they're, they're deficient here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you get bigger volume changes, better changes for the nose. Everything's better if Marpy is done as opposed to don't. The moment you make the cuts, you don't release a lot of the sutures. And so you don't get as much of a change. With, with Marpy, isn't there, isn't it very age limited? Like once you mm -hmm. get into like it is. your thirties, you're pretty much that's you're on the, on the frame. So we, yeah. Guys in their twenties were rather, we're questioning whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. Women in their thirties, but we've had a 68 year old woman and a 48 year old guy. So okay. you never know. 
you can always try. Sure. They're developing some protocols now, and it's based on palatal thickness and thickness of the zygomatic buttress to try to figure out who's going to split and who isn't. But as of now, we don't have it. You just kind of have to put it in and give it a shot and see what happens. Now that, that brings up another point, which is, I mean, there are a ton of orthodontists that don't have that in their arsenal yet. Right. For sure. Just like, I mean, how many years did it take us to get orthodontists to start using temporary anchorage devices? Still can't. In my community, I still can't get a a bunch of orthodontists to use them. It's crazy. So we discussed earlier, there are a group of dentists that just want to go to work and do dentistry. Yep. They want to get a paycheck and orthodontists are going to do fine. There are not many orthodontists that go broke, right? They they don't. Not not around here. You know, they don't, I don't see them all of a sudden going, well, we're having a going out of business sale this month, right? They don't have that. They're going to do fine. But you have to, you have to find, you know, we said that the general dentist that wants to progress has to own their own practice. I mean, we set up a criteria for that. And the orthodontists are the same way. There's got to be a drive for them to be better than the person down the street and to be one of the leaders in their community and leaders in, in dentistry. And it may not be the guy next to you. And in fact, it isn't. I've got a guy close to me and I've got a person 20 miles from me and my patients make that drive. And so I think the restorative dentists that are thinking through, how am I going to grow my practice? How am I going to be better? A very important part in the future is you have to work with a progressive orthodontist. If you're not, you can't do the case. I mean, you've gone to spear, you've gotten the education, you've yep. set your practice up, you've got the patients that you want, you practice yep. case presentations, you do all this stuff, then you send it to the orthodontist down the street and they don't do what you need to do. Yep. I mean, you're screwed bump, at that point bump, in time. Bump, bump. Yep. So you have to be willing to say, you know, the the 10 year old with, with everything in the right place, it just needs some tweaking of a couple teeth. You need to go down the street to the guy next to the school. Yep. But this person, they need to drive 20 miles and, yep. and go see somebody else. Jimmy Key had some great advice when we had him in uh, on one of our surecasts. He, when talking to young dentists about how to be successful, he said, don't compete with people who are doing bread and butter dentistry right? Get there and learn how to manage joints, manage airway. You do all this stuff and you're going to automatically separate yourself from, you're not going to be competing with all these others. So for all the young dentists out there who are listening, or even other dentists who are sort of midstream dentists, and they want to, you know, give a little boost to their career, look at doing the stuff that is going to take more intervention, more time, more consideration, more conversation with patients to ultimately get them healthier and get them in a position that a lot of dentists won't spend the time to do. And then collaborate, find your orthodontist, find the orthodontist that wants to go, say, go to Spear, learn this information, you know, build study clubs around this stuff and be the person in your community who's the Jeff Rouse or the Jim McKee who does the TMJ stuff out by us or the Buddy Mopper who did all the bonding, you know, be that person and you will not be short of patience because that's there are too many too. people out there. And that's fun, right? fun to be stimulated in your, in every day to be stimulated about some new right. thing that you're doing is incredibly fun to, to, 
to do. I mean, I, it's the reason I still really love going in and doing stuff. It, yep. it, it's, it's a blast. So dentistry's got to be, I mean, I think it's just got to be intellectually challenging or it couldn't do the mechanical part over and over again. I think I've got to be challenged somehow. I think we do it too long that if you sat there and just kept on, for me, kept on just doing, like you said, the mechanical stuff without the, I don't know, something that's going to make it, that's going to make it more engaging. It's got to be more, more engaging for yeah. me, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think that's, that's what- Oh, one other thing I was going to say about, if you want to get involved in, in more complex dentistry, the other thing for young dentists to know is that it is a two-year process, I think. And the two-year process is you have to feed the specialists the cases and you can't stop along the way. It was, so I remember when Bill came and joined my practice, I, I told him it's two years, just be patient. And because you look at the case and you go, you know what? I could do this case with just doing a bunch of veneers. Right. And that's what the digital smile design stuff is all is kind of unfortunately leading a lot of people to think, which is I'm covering all these teeth. I make the smile look better. How about I just do veneers and all the teeth I cover? You know, I've talked to Coachman and he's not, that's not what he's saying at all. He's just painting a picture. He's not saying that's the treatment plan. And so you need to then say, okay, how do I change the wax rim? And then you put together a plan to go to the orthodontist, periodontist, whatever it is. It's going to take two years for that case to come back when you would have started cutting on teeth. When the, you get the cycle going though, and you can't break the cycle, you have to keep it. You have to keep yep. pumping the you cycle. You keep on planting. You keep on planting and wait for your harvest. When it comes back, it's great, but it's two years. And, yep. but once it gets going, then you are constantly refilled with this new case coming in. So yep. you'll, you'll get a restorative one and then you'll get another restorative one. And then all of a sudden you get one back from ortho. It's yep. like, wow, that was an incredible month. And you yep. didn't see it coming. Right. right. And, but you have to be willing to put up with the beginning where the cases that are going out that you would have ordinarily been able to treat. I'm not treating that one yet. I'm treating it when it's in a better situation. And you also have to be willing to accept that more than likely you're going to do on many of the cases, you're going to do less dentistry. You're going to do less dentistry. Yep. You're going to bleach and do forefront teeth yep. as opposed to doing 10 or 12 teeth. And, but I tell you that builds your tribe, right? These are people who oh, now are yeah. just like so grateful for their changes in their health or life. And you've saved them a, a crap load of restored money and not ground down their teeth. Yeah. And you don't have to deal with all the problems. As, I mean, you and I have been doing it a long time. The more dentistry you do, the more problems you have to deal you with have. down the road, right? Yeah, absolutely. The less, the more you can keep them in natural teeth, the better. Yeah. I tell patients the biggest downside to dentistry, I think, is that it doesn't last forever. Because any patient could sit down and say, all right, I'm going to do your teeth and you're 25 years old and it's going to last you until you die. It'll last 75 years. Fine. Sign me up. I think everyone would sign up for that. But that's not our reality. Not, not, in, my, not in my world, at least. And so, you know, the, the good part though is, and, and it's another learning lesson is when you start doing predictable dentistry and you, that, I mean, the world becomes a better place for me. I mean, I don't have, I don't go into my office constantly dealing with emergencies anymore. Right. And it, I've gotten to enough, a point in my career, lessons that I've learned have got me to, to say, that's not predictable. I'm not doing it. You yep. know, this is what we've got to do, which is, you know, just treatment, treatment planning. 
I said, I was going to say, I don't let people talk me into stuff. I, I let people talk me into stuff I shouldn't do all the time, but right, sure. I try to do it less than I, well, <laughs> and I used to. <laughs> that, that's the advantage of growing old, right? It's like people, people will push you a little bit less and you'll stand up a little bit more because you've, you've gone down the path they're asking you to go down. You've like, I've gone down there. I don't want to do this again. Right. And so yeah. lady the other day came in and she said, I think we need to redo these front two crowns. And she looked at me and said, and you don't want to do it, do you? And I go, no. Nope. She yeah, said, right. well, will you do it? No. <laughs> it's kind not, of funny. I'm not going to do it. It's funny at our age when we turn down dentistry because you know you're just wiser. You know you know what's going to happen. You've read, you've read this book before. You know the outcome. I want to ask you one more clinical question before we, before we finish up because this is a subject that I'm really confused about and it's about tongue-tied. So for, for kids, I totally get it. For infants and, and kids, I understand that the tongue's going to help develop the maxilla. It's going to, for infants, it's um, with breastfeeding and all that. And I understand as the maxilla develops, that helps the, the nasal floor develops. What are your thoughts on adults with tongue ties? When do you recommend releases? What's any thoughts on this? I, I truly, yeah. I, I don't have any information on this. I'm curious what you can give me in about 60 seconds. I find that the cases that I look at and I say the wax rim is messed up in some dimension, mm -hmm. a very large percentage of those cases have an associated tongue tie. Because the tongue isn't going up into the palate and, right. and helping spread it out. Yeah. So they either had big tonsils and adenoids as a kid or a tongue tie. Okay. Or both. Mm -hmm. And my take on it at this, at the moment is if I do the correction to the wax rim, then I want to take care of the tongue tie when that correction is done. Okay. If they're not willing to do the correction, I'm very reticent to do the tongue tie Okay. because I don't know where the tongue is going to go. Now, myofunctional therapists will theoretically tell me, oh no, we can get the tongue to go and do this. And I'm like, but where is it going to go? I mean, the arch is already too narrow. The tongue is really big where I know it doesn't make sense to me. It's like ENTs that do tongue procedures to drag the tongue forward, genioglossal advancement, something like that. Right. And those, the, the, if you run the data right up front, the data looks pretty good. If you run it five, you know, three or four, five years down the road, it's horrible because it goes, it drops back to the position it was at before. And now they've been through this big procedure. Mm -hmm. If there's no room, there's no room. So my take is that I want to create space before I start dealing with tongue ties, but I'm recommending it at the end of my therapy and a vast majority of the cases, because I don't, I think I'm going to create room and then they're not going to put their tongue up there and either they're not going to get the full advantage of the space or they're not going to maintain the space as well. Is, is that why you think there's the relapse on these cases is because the tongue's not doing its yes. part to support it? Yeah, what do you think um, with, this is not inexpensive to go through these procedures, access to care issues. And so where, where do you think we'll get with medical insurance, getting more support for these dental procedures? You think not at all? You know, I, I was shaking my head maybe because I talked to Stanley Liu out at Stanford. Sure. Stanley is a oral surgeon, works in the ENT department. He developed the dome procedure and they're getting coverage for that medical coverage. I've also talked to Sam Bobic, who's a, a 
an oral surgeon at Swedish Hospital in Seattle, the one that I used when I was working in Seattle with Greg. Okay. And he's getting coverage for upper airway resistance doing maxillomandibular advancement. Oh, really? Um, yeah, we had one patient that had, she had bilateral crossbite and anterior open bite and UARS documented through a sleep study and they got coverage for the ortho and the surgery. So I know it exists. I think the problem that we're going to have is that MARPI dome, let's just say MARPI because it's a purely orthodontic procedure. Right. No, we, no surgeon involved other than periodontist putting in some tab or the appliance. We, we don't do big enough studies in dentistry. We won't have here 10,000 people that went through MARPI and we did sleep studies before and after. Yeah. We, we don't have funding for that kind yeah. of information. We're going to get we had 20 people that had MARPI and this ha- This is what happened. Yeah. And there's no control and there's no this and there's no sure. that. And then there's, you know, 32 people had blah, blah, blah. And 12 people did this. We're going to have a bunch of studies that we're going to try to sell as a big unit. And the science, the people in the medical world are going to go, yeah, that, that, that ain't going to work. Right. Now it's the same. I mean, we, we've got, you know, rapid palatal expansion literature out the wazoo, but we have 20 and 30 and 50 and a hundred we've got, and we never did a big multi-center with controls and this and that and the other and proving that the airway got better and, you know, using a real marker and stuff. And all we would look at is, Oh, look on the CEF, it got wider or whatever. Oh, the nasal volume got bigger on a cone beam. So what? The reason we're probably never going to get medical coverage is because we don't generate science to the level that the insurance company is going to go, oh, well, of course that makes sense. We need to do that, right? Mm-hmm. MMA, they do. They've because got, there's so much so much data to support it. Right. They, it's in a hospital. They usually have sleep studies associated with it. It was being done by both ENT and sleep labs and OMS. And I mean, so they created a decent set of literature. And I mean, for those who aren't aware, that's a maxillar, maxillar mandib- mandibular advancement. So bringing both jaws forward. Oh, one of the questions you asked was, how do we know how wide and such? I think that our protocols now where we do the periodontal, the SFOT on the lower, we actually expand the arch as wider than the basal bone allows. We, we go wide on the lower. And then we expand the upper beyond that. So we start on the lower, get as much expansion as we possibly can of the lower arch, just within the housing of bone. And then the upper is expanded beyond that now. So we've maximized the amount of expansion we can possibly get. I think that along with myofunctional therapy can be for many patients, just as good as the full two jaw procedure. How do I know that? Cause I got one patient. <laughs> <laughs> Now I've got a, I've got one in particular that went from an AHI of 28 to an AHI of one huh. and having, having already had U triple P surgery, you know, all kinds of different ENT deviated stuff. She had everybody intervene. And when we finally just created the room, she took advantage of it and everything got better. So I think that we can be as effective as a full-blown surgery for many of our patients that are not that far off anatomic, not the ones McKee looks at whose jaws are way set back, sure. joint degeneration and stuff like that. You have to move those jaws. But the ones that are just a little off the wax rim, we need a little wider, a little farther forward, a little this, a little that. Those patients, I think we've got a good chance without full-blown surgery of making them feel better. 
It's just, are we ever going to take the time to research it well enough to prove it? Probably not. We just probably aren't. It's never been a strength of dentistry. Right. Because we aren't funded to do it. Exactly. And the, the system in dentistry, the, the dental schools are not set up like medical schools are to do the clinical research that they are in medical schools. It's just a, such a different system. So. so if we can get Pfizer to, <laughs> to be in charge of making a Murphy <laughs> <laughs> I think they got a little funding. cash laying around right now. They could probably <laughs> afford to do that for us. So, but who am I to say? I don't know this. Jeff, um, there's so much more to know. And really just spending this time with you shows even more why, why I need to spend some time out at the Spear Educational Facility. There's, uh, here's, here's a challenge, I think, with this stuff. And I, here's actually, here's a question for you. The information is growing so much. I look back at 10, 12 years ago when you first came to our study club, and it was just like a little pin, pinprick, right? Do you foresee that at some point that this will be like a subspecialty in dentistry, that uh, sleep, sleep dentistry? I hope not. Dentistry? I hope not. Not because? Because the people in sleep dentistry are taking it the wrong way. What it's, do you mean by that? I, I mean, it's for them, it's uh, find a sick fat man with, you know, fat old guy with apnea and make a mandibular advancement appliance. That's their only tool. I think it's doing our patients a huge disservice. And I think it actually is delaying our ability to move this where we need it to, which is we need to be looking at four-year-old kids and yep. trying to keep them from becoming the fat old man with apnea. Yeah. And I mean, if we can- and if we get people, if we need to find them at four and then we need to find them at 12 and 18. And I mean, we need to find them along the way. And we've got these orthodontic tools now that are so much better at intervening earlier to give people beautiful smiles, good function and good airways that we ought to be using them earlier. We shouldn't. My goal would be to hopefully eliminate the need to ever have sleep dentistry. Right. Sleep dentistry, CPAPs, all that crap, I, I hope goes away. It not in my lifetime, but it, oh, there's a, a bonus. I brought a, a friend. Cat. I have a friend who needs some attention. This is my nice. cat, everybody. So those who can't see this, uh, this is Chip the cat that just needed a little attention as we bite my ankles. So I brought him up. So no, I hope that sleep is uh, never becomes a subspecialty because all they're going to do is make these make appliances. appliances and mess up people's bites. So I think, I think we ought to be able to solve it rather than keep fix keep mandating it. At the Spear Institute, you actually obviously have um, presentations and stuff. Is there hands-on workshops also with the, yep. with the stuff? Yeah. What, what do you learn in the, in the hands-on workshop? Hands-on workshop. Uh, we have three, I mean, they're obviously lectures. So we have three days worth of lecture material. There are three hands-on components though. Day one, we do an exam. So we go through what a, an airway exam looks like. And it honestly, is just a dental exam. It's just looking at the same stuff we always look at. It's just seeing it with new eyes. So sure. it doesn't change your exam and your practice at all. Right. Second day, we do steps two and three of the protocol. Step four, five, and six are done. Day three. Every night that you're there, you go home and sleep with screening devices. So okay. you, you learn what that's all about. And we, we evaluate your sleep screening. Would you, would you mind talking about the six steps since we, since we brought it a couple of times, just for those who are like, what, what so are we talking about? We call it the Seattle protocol because I came up with it while I was up with Greg up in Seattle. And the idea was that, that I had been making sleep appliances. So I'm, I, I was talking bad a second ago about sleep dentistry. Well, that's what I did. I made sleep appliances. But I also started learning about the idea of 
being able to breathe through your nose as being a critical component. So I said, okay, I've got sleep appliances that I make, but I also know you need to breathe through your nose. So I came up, I actually wrote a, an article about it, which is called the uh, autonomic nervous system trial. And it was saying, I'm going to, a person that comes to see me for a sleep appliance, I'm going to make them prove to me that they can't fix themselves before I try to fix them. So I would make them go through a nasal breathing protocol first. Okay. And if that didn't fix them, then I would make them a sleep appliance, but I would never make them a final sleep appliance because too many times people come in and you make them final sleep appliances and they go, I don't like this, or I don't want to wear it, or it doesn't work. Right. So I made a temporary version mm -hmm. and then I would, if they said, okay, I like this and we proved that it was good, then we make them the final appliance. So that's, that was the foundation that I went to Seattle with. And I was using in a temporary appliance, a thing called a MyTap, which yep. is just a thermoplastic mandibular advancement appliance. And when I went up there, I said to Greg, I said, you know, the, the thing we're missing is that a bunch of my patients tell me I can't sleep without my night guard. And I used to believe it was because I fixed their second molar interference, right? And the flat plane. And we, perf I remember being in a room with a really famous dentist and him saying the night guard works when you perfect the occlusion on it. No, I know who you are, but what you just said is not true. And I know you believe it because you perfect the occlusion, but it's not true because night guards work and they, people come into me and they're crap. They barely fit. The occlusion is totally off on them. And yet the person says, I can't sleep without this thing. And you look at it and you're like, God, it barely even covers any of the teeth. And right. I mean, it's just a total disaster. Oh no, I love it. Don't touch it. And I'm like, okay. I know that night guards do something. And when you, now get into the world of airway, you realize all it does is create more oral volume, more oral volume means the tongue can leave the airway. And so you may breathe through your nose better, sleep better all night long. And if you do, you're going to heal yourself. You're going to feel better. And then I also looked at the research on anterior repositioning appliances. So we move people forward three millimeters on a Ferrara appliance or a Gelb appliance or many, many different varieties, right? Aspen appliance, some of the common names. And those all seem to do the same thing. You look at the data and read it, you're like, Oh crap, those work too. Why would those work? Well, maybe because they open the vertical dimension and move people forward a little bit. Yep. Both very positive things for the airway. Greg and I figured out a way to actually take this MyTap and make five different night guards from it. So step one of the protocol proved to me you can't heal yourself by just learning to breathe through your nose. So we use mouth taping, which is a Buteco protocol. So we teach people to breathe through their nose for two weeks. If that doesn't fix them, we make them a mandibular night guard, but it's a, it's a temporary version. It's provisional. It's from the MyTap. So we deconstruct the MyTap, make a lower night guard. That doesn't work after a few days. Then we add some beads, move them forward three millimeters. That doesn't work. Then we add the upper to it, take the beads off, put the lower in. Now you've got an upper and lower night guard, which doubles the vertical dimension. That doesn't work. We stay at the doubled vertical dimension and move them forward three millimeters. And if that doesn't work, then we move them out until they finally feel better. So five different night guards, one way of healing yourself. And wherever the patient feels better, we know that's, that's their sweet spot. That's the night guard they deserve. Whereas I was before always making them mandibular advancement appliances and messing their bite up five different opportunities rather than one to find the right appliance for you. And if I can do anything, in fact, last year, I didn't make a single mandibular advancement appliance, not one year before four, a year before four. 
Because once you got to that point, then you would be having conversations all along with the patient about this is a structural issue. This would be our goal with the surgical intervention is what this appliance is doing for you. Is that, is that the so, basis? So the protocol does two things or is used in my practice for two reasons. One is a patient says, I'm not doing anything to fix me or you know, basically that's what comes out of the discussion. You know, they aren't doing anything. Right. In which case you got to make them something to make them better. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I make them something. The second is they're reticent to believe that what you're saying is true, that you need this and that and the other. I mean, sure. you're a 60 year old guy. Absolutely. Whatever, right. Why would I want to do that? I'm healthy. Well, if we walk through this protocol and we can get rid of, and I remember I said, if we search enough, I bet we can find something. I don't right? doubt that. Yep. If we searched enough and said, oh, well, it could actually be that. If I can make you something and that goes away, now I've got your attention. Then you can say, in order to be like this piece of plastic all day long and all night long, you need this. Mm -hmm. So it's proof of concept. Sure. So the two uses I have for the protocol now are I'm going to control your disease and you're not going to do anything else, or I'm going to prove to you that it makes you better. But what I'm finding now is that I've, having done enough cases and, and been using this for a few years is I, I just do dentistry. Yeah. It's like, where do I really want the teeth? Oh, and by the way, that's going to be the healthy place. Or you can work the discussion backwards. You know, in order to be healthy, the teeth need to be here. Here's the reason why. Oh, and by the way, you're going to look better and feel, and the function's going to be better. Whatever gets the patient's attention more, be it dentistry with a bonus health or the other way around. Lady the other day goes, I'm, I'm 58 years old. I've been married for 35 years. I don't care what I look like. And I said, I don't care what you look like either. She was like, what? Like, no, I care less. All I want is your, you to be healthy. So this will make me healthy. Yes, this is going to make you healthy. How do you know that? Well, we did your, we went through the protocol. We're, we're just simulating what the protocol did. And then I finally went, oh, and by the way, you're going to look better. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, we'll work on keeping you this way, but I think you're going to look better. So before you so, get into any, uh, any of the airway stuff, I don't want to say for all cases, but are you typically then going through your Seattle protocol as you're trying to get better understanding or no? Not now. Used to be. But now you've, you're, you have enough confidence that you can talk to patients because this is your experience. This is what I've seen. We could go through this protocol, but I can tell you based on patients like you, this is what I found. Is that sort of how the, how the conversation goes? Yes. Okay. I'm comfortable enough in my presentation to have that discussion today. And what I'm finding is we've been doing the workshop now for four years. And so I've got a group of mentors that started my best group of mentors was went to my first course mm -hmm. and, and a ton of my mentors came from that group. So they come back once or twice a year that I get to see them. Yeah. And the vast majority of mentors, probably all of them, actually, when they come back, they say the same thing. I used to do the protocol all the time. It was kind of essentially my crutch to sure. getting into these conversations. The more sure. I've done though. I don't do it don't very know. often. Yeah. I just present the case. I have the conversation about the case. If they don't want to do it, then I do the protocol to find the right appliance. If they don't want to do it because they're a little reticent about the, you know, how am I going to react? Are you sure this is going to be the case? Then I do the protocol to prove it. The rest of the time, all they do is dentistry. It's advanced treatment planning. That's all it is. Yeah. And it's certainly for patients who are 
they're, they're standing right from the beginning. They're not going to do surgery. It gives you a much more predictable way to figure out where they're applying, what type of appliance they should be having and where the appliance should be set. Yeah. So it's, it's funny you say that because I'm not going to do surgery goes away sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Just like I'm not going to do ortho. Yep. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm not doing ortho. Yep. Well, okay. Then you have to, you know, when you say no to that, you're saying yes to something else. Correct. So here's what you're saying yes to. Yep. You're not going to get the advantage of this, this, and this. Well, is there another way we can do it? No, <laughs> you can do the ortho, or you can not get the advantages that we've been talking about. Well, yeah. but I want to do the advantages. And I'm like, okay, well then let's have a conversation. Yeah. So what's, you know, then you have the conversation about what's the limiting factor of ortho. Well, I don't want to be in three years. All right. Well, you give me two. I mean, you just start negotiating time right. then yeah. or cost or whatever right. it is. It's, but you've got them for the ortho. The change in my world happened when, first of all, when I started believing more in ortho and that came when I did a little bit of ortho for a while. And then I could, and then I found the right guys and to help me. And I'm a big believer in ortho and in restorative care. So I've always been able to sell it. I'm also a big believer in gold and I've always been able to sell gold. I mean, everybody has gold in my practice. I actually have a technician in my office just does gold. So it's what you really believe in. But the added element of the protocol allowed them to believe it as much as me, sure. right? And so they're like, well, I feel better with whatever. And I go, okay, well, in order to be whatever, you know, in order to be that thing, because the moment you take it out, you're, you're you again. Yep. You're not that. Yep. I, I mean, the more sleep appliances you do and the more bites you mess up, you also start believing in it a little bit more too. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think the more you do it, the more you see that there's going to be some changes, not for everybody, but there's going to be people whose rights change. And then how do you manage that? And conversations with but, that become really complicated. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing, I have a new one for that. People go, well, I want my bite back. I want, I want to get my bite back. My line to them is no, no, no. The new bite is actually better. And we screen them with their new bite. And a hundred percent of the time, their airway is better because their jaw is held is right. more forward. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and it's more open. So their tongue yep. goes out through their teeth, right? My line now is old bite, bad, new bite, good. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, but I want my bite back. No, no, no. Old bite, bad. <laughs> new bite, good. <laughs> yeah, I can, can, can I use that line? <laughs> you, you, it's, it's a little, little Jeff Ross I confusion. I I teach her. <laughs> yeah, you do, right? You should be branding that. You need to brand that. Make sure you get yeah. that copyrighted. Old by bad, new by good, new by good. I remember having a friend that that, that happened and he took out lower buys and retracted. Uh, oh my God, uh, what are you doing? And sure should he ended up back on CPAP and the whole thing. Sure. Like, no, yeah. old by bad, new by good. <laughs> when do you finish with your ortho? Oh, I've decided I'm going to be cremated and... Uh, <laughs> So I've always wondered if this nickel titanium stuff melts and what, what temperature. So, so I wondered about that. If you'd see this ashes with this, it's orthotic. Yeah, but with your better airway. My D-Vanding my D my D will be cremation. You know, the story ends if I ever finish. Um, so I have been told the first of the year, but I'm not. Yeah, we've heard that before from orthodontists. <laughs> I'm turning 60 in May. And so I want 
them off and I'd love to have the restorations on, but I doubt that timing would be really difficult. Yeah. I'd like them off. That would be really cool before my 60th birthday. (laughs) Some people say 16th. Jeff Rose says 60, just to be clear. Well, yeah, I'm breathing better now. That's well, and ultimately that's the whole thing, right? When we go out, I still don't have bad apnea at the end of the evening. I may snore more, but but, yeah. My apnea, I actually, I got to do a beta test for a, a device on a phone. And to show you how weird I am, I I did it with like, I would keep a diary. Okay. Two drinks at seven o'clock. <laughs> like, cool. That's a, that's a surprise. Me. And so I never got over an AHI of five. No oh, matter okay. what. I mean, I could drink right up in the minute I go to sleep and five was my max. So that's pretty good. And you've, you've had SFOT, you've had surgically facilitated orthodontic treatment was that once or twice, twice, twice. Yeah. I would have, I, I didn't have the option of dome. I would have done it that way. You would have done dome to begin with. Would you, done. would you have considered SFOT as an adjunct to the dome? Yes. Okay. Yes, Cause so I've got better tissue and bone support for my teeth now. So just quickly, for those who aren't familiar with SFOT, it's also called wilcodontics. There's other descriptions for it, but essentially there's incisions that are, the, the tissue is flapped, the tissue is released. There's cuts that are made in the bone. There's something called a wrap phenomenon, which allows the teeth to move faster. There's typically some bone grafting that's done before the tissue is put back to place. And then you can get up to maybe 10 millimeters of expansion. That's uh, what uh, Mandelier says, but I think that might be pushing it a little bit. So maybe six to eight millimeters. as you need. Yeah, so it allows cool. you to move the upright the roots and you can then move the roots into this new bone that this particular matter that you've done. I had got eight millimeters more intermolar width. Okay. So that's first molar palatal, first molar palatal. Yeah. And we didn't measure it on comb beam. We'll eventually do it when we finish to see true movement. But And then you did a maxillar expansion. You did a Marpy. Is that uh, what you did? What no, did you do for your... I'm too old. Yeah. No, I did that in the upper. I, I did SFOT in the upper. Oh, so I did a little bit, a little bit on the lower right. Okay. And my so lower that's... jaw is big. My lower arch is big. My upper, I have bilateral crossbite and end on anterior. So my, my problem is all upper arch. So you just did two rounds of SFOT. You did not have any uh, expansion surgery. I would have done dumb. To do it again? I actually have entertained the thought later on. Every so often when I'm not getting done, I'm like, you know, I could just move that whole segment. Yeah, and, and just make it get done faster. Be done, but... All right, buddy. You know what I was, I was thinking? Uh, there's there's going to be someday there'll be a, a dentistry hall of fame. And I was thinking, uh, you know, so you will for certain be one of those key members in the hall of fame. And Jeff's a Kansas City Royals fan, baseball fan. And so I was trying to like equate it. And I was like, all right, so who would he be from the Kansas City Royals? And who, who's who's your who's your favorite hall of famer? I'm, I'm curious. My favorite hall of famer or my favorite from, royal? From, from the royal. In the from the royals. So I played second base. So Frank White was always oh. a big deal. But um, George Brett. That's you right. Know, if you're a Royals fan, you have to think George Brett at some Pro- point. Yeah. Probably the greatest Royal ever, George Brett. But I said that that can't be Jeff Rouse because he's an infielder. So Jeff Rouse, he's the kind of guy that needs to be holding the ball all the time. He needs to be a pitcher. <laughs> so Saber so, Hagen? No, 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 no. I don't think so. Uh, I think there's a guy named uh, Quisenberry. Remember Dan? Uh, yeah. Submarine. Yeah, yeah. He, he had the little sort of sidearm.
arm, underneath arm, submarine pitch, right-hander. That's sort of Jeff Rouse. Jeff Rouse is going to be, he's not, he's not, he's unorthodox in his, in his style. So to me, <laughs> even though I think George Brett is the greatest of the Royals, I think you're more Dan Quisenberry because you got to have the ball in your hand and you're going to come at people a little bit submarine, a little bit underarm, a little sidearm, <laughs> and it's going to be a little bit, a little bit harder for them to appreciate uh, some of the stuff like they're doing. So I like it. I like it. Thanks. <laughs> All right, buddy. I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, truly the amount of time that you've spent with us, you're so generous. How do people want to, if they want to reach out and they, and I can't encourage people enough to go learn from, from Jeff, get out to Spear. How do, how do they do that? They can look up speareducation.com, speareducation.com is the website. All the workshops are going. They're all back at full capacity. We still through 2021 are doing the seminars online. 2022 is still, we're hoping because the auditorium's a little over 300 people. So we're hoping to start doing them back there because I love having that much energy in the room. That That's fun, but the, a definitive time for when that's going to happen hasn't been set, but the workshop's out there. Really, in the workshop is, uh, while I would love for everyone to have a background in airway before you take the workshop uh, and treatment planning, the way that we teach it out there, since COVID and the kind of restrictions on travel and how hard it is to do, we've eliminated those entry points. And so you can come straight into the workshop, the airway workshop and, and visit, and you don't have to mess with the other things right now. So if you want to just catch that, if you've gone to some other outstanding places for treatment planning and inclusion and all the rest, and you just want to skip to airway, this is the time to do it because we're going to cool. allow that for a while. The nice thing is you could do like a two for one, go out and see Rouse and then go see Jimmy key and then you get the the tmj occlusion and the airway and then you can get them together and you can hear them debate which came first the airway or joints and uh, the chicken or the we're airway. actually yeah we're doing that at uh, aes this year oh so yeah. equilibration society will have uh mckee piper and myself on a on a like three lectures in a row and then a panel so we may be back to screaming for <laughs> we, 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 saw that at the we saw it at the restorative academy a few years ago so they they got the band back together that'll yeah. be awesome <laughs> so should be fun jeff truly thank you for your time your, your sharing of your knowledge your experience this is this is so valuable for i mean for all dentists but especially i think about the young dentists as they're they're finally finding their path and stuff the amount of courage that you show and and i appreciate it and maybe i appreciate it more because i saw learning from mopper and sort of some of the obstacles he had to overcome in his pioneering. But we we are a better profession because of you. We uh, I can certainly tell you I'm a better dentist because of you. I appreciate your friendship. And I appreciate your guidance with all this stuff on your way. Um, so thank you so much for your time. It's very nice of you. Thanks. You know, one of the, the great things that has come to me is uh, I grew up in a little bitty small uh, town in Texas. And to think that I get to know famous people like you is pretty amazing. And then I know to get to know who you really are and how, what an incredible person you are is, is just such a treat. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. I'm in my fancy Panama hat. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us for our DOT Sharecast. And always uh, yours for better dentistry. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley. We'll see you next time. Well, thanks so much for listening or viewing our ShareCast today. If you enjoy this information and you want to get more information from dental online training, then check us out at dothandson.com. That's one word, dothandson.com. Or check us out on Instagram, 
or Facebook at HeartleadBBS. And be sure to share this with your friends and colleagues who you think might be able to get some great information from the ShareCast that we've shared with you today.